Hello again, everyone. Welcome to episode 17 of Can You Hear Me? I'm Rob Johnson, president of Rob Johnson Communications. And I'm Eileen Rochford, CEO of the marketing strategy firm, The Harbinger Group. Analyzing the yearly Edelman Trust Barometer is fascinating to me, and it's a real insight into what Americans are thinking about those who influence all of us. The title of this edition of Edelman's yearly survey, which was released in January, is called The Cycle of Distrust. Now, we're going to do this a little differently today. Instead of one guest, we have two. We're very fortunate to have two, two experts in the field of communication. The first is Lissa Drust, who, like me, started her career in journalism, but then transitioned to the strategy world by first working at Serafin and Associates for eight years, then three years ago, starting her own firm, Strategic Consulting. Lissa, welcome. Thank you very much, Rob and Eileen. Great to have you. Thanks for being with us. And our other expert today is Anne-Marie Mitchell. Anne-Marie has spent many years in the agency world, having worked at Golan and Ketchum, and she served in leadership roles at major corporations. She still does agency work on a contract basis and is for the past 14 years. She's also been an associate professor at Columbia College here in Chicago, uh, teaching PR studies courses and developing a new curriculum. And Marie, I'm so delighted to have you here. It's great for you to be with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Excited to be here. So let's start this conversation with the cycle of distrust, because that's where the focus is, because As this report illustrates, distrust is now society's default emotion. We're witnessing an unprecedented volume of disinformation and societal division, which many feel is fueled by government and media institutions battling for political and commercial gain. So leading the list, or should I say at the bottom of the list, depending on how you look at it, nearly one in two respondents view government and media as divisive forces in society. 48% view government and 46% view the media in this light. Equally concerning is the finding that journalists were seen as trustworthy by just 46% of respondents and government leaders, even less, just 42%. So I know we're throwing a lot of numbers at everybody, but we're just trying to give it context before we get into our discussion. So Lisa, let's start with you. As someone who spent years working in the media and now who runs uh, her own firm with government clients, why does this trust and the trust in these two institutions continue to erode And it seems like every year they're kind of at the bottom of this. And so I think probably telling people, hey, government and media are at the bottom of the list and people kind of shake their heads. But what's the long term ramification of of having these kinds of numbers year in and year out? Well, one of the things that we are often consulted for is crisis communications. And if you look at the word trust, it is eerily similar to the word truth, even has a U in there, a couple T's in there. Trust and truth are paramount. And when you are talking about media or government, you have to be trustful. That means you have to be speaking about the truth. Sometimes the truth is ugly. Sometimes people don't want to hear the truth. But when you're looking at government specifically, when there's something funky going wrong or something's not right, shining a spotlight and making truth stand out is 100% of the way to kill a conspiracy, kill something bad, kill whatever. When we're doing crisis communication, the one thing that we look for is truth, because truth is the best defense. Truth, 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 and truth leads to trust. Now, this day and age, it pains me to say this, as Rob, you know, as journalists, social media is more important than traditional media. The best thing about the internet is anyone can become an expert. The bad thing about the internet 
is anyone can become an expert. And if you are not truthful in that, then no one is going to trust you. And what do we think is uh, ahead for all of us if these numbers continue to dwindle, Lisa, particularly in government institutions? Well, the numbers are going to continue to dwindle because there's going to be more and more and more and more and more media, social media. You have a podcast. Tom Serafin and I have a podcast. Ten years ago, we didn't even know what a podcast was. So this is going to continue to amplify and there's going to be more messengers and more messengers and more messengers. And really, it's, it's, it's a crisis because truth will bubble up. Truth will sustain, will be the end of all ends, will be the truth. And everything else is just going to get pushed down. And it's really about education and inf- informing people. Information is knowledge. Knowledge is power. And if you give people the right information, got a fighting chance at winning this, especially with government. Our governments aren't going to go away. Our local municipal governments are some of the hardest things to work in. Unbelievably hard. And I work with a ton of them. And I don't envy them. But we need them because this is what our country is based on. It's government. Mm-hmm. Good government. Shine the spotlight on good government. And when you shine the spotlight, all the cockroaches go away. Now, that's a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned local government. I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, that is one of the growing areas, one of the bright spots is I think people do trust local government and local news. You know, I, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And I, you know, um, I, I think a little bit, you know, one thing we need to do is t- take a step back to and this whole debate about the role of journalists and time in terms of shining a light. You know, 100 years ago, um, public opinion was published by Walter Lippmann, who is really one of the first pundits, you know. And so if we we kind of take that long term perspective, we know that punditry and this influence journalists have tried to exert over our government is, you know, a little bit part of the history of journalism. Right. And, um, you know, even Walter Lippmann was challenging this idea that journalists could be entirely neutral because they wanted, you know, everybody sees the world and through a certain lens, certain reality and wants to shape it um, into the reality that they see. So this whole debate, you know, about the true, um, you know, ability for the journalist to be a non-bias is something, you know, we've always been talking about. And, you know, punditry is really, because of social media tying to what you were saying, is just gone through the roof, right? You know, so the, this ability of a journalist to, you know, share their opinion, and then what is it a journalist or is it an entertainer too, right? And we know that that's one of these issues that's really shaping and driving this mistrust because we don't, you know, necessarily even see the role of a journalist anymore as as independent. Many journalists also have uh, entertainment publicists, you know, they, you know, they're trying to grow their, their uh, brand, their personal brand. And, and I think, you know, tying exactly what you said, social media enables this, right? It enables this, this blurring of lines between a truth seeker and a, a promoter, right? And we also know, you know, I read some articles, Columbia Journalism Review used to look at, uh, you know, Obama, and what Obama was doing with uh, Zacharias and some of the pundits and trying to trying to kind of, you know, uh, cully their favor so that maybe a, an opinion piece could be written in his favor in a, in a time when he's trying to get, you know, public opinion to, to, to stir his way. And we know Trump, you know, and, and that and our president, former president took that to a new level in terms of the relationship and the, and the blurring of lines between news and, and government. So, um, you know, I think that's a, a really important issue too, is to, is, you know, know this is part of, of the challenge. That's a great point, Anne-Marie. And Lisa, you said something earlier about 
the podcast, which is content creation, which is what we're doing today. And you talked about yours and Tom's. And I think it's really important. I know that our opinions about things that are based upon our backgrounds and based upon our years in the professional world creep in. I have no doubt about that. But what I'm suggesting is that what Eileen and I are doing here, what you're and what you and Tom are doing on your podcast, you are trying to give good information and trying to peddle, you know, the truth. And a lot of people would do something like this so that they could spread misinformation. So I think that's the most one of the most dangerous points that we can make here is if if you're you and your heart are trying to impart accurate, good, important information, that's one thing. And yes, opinion does creep in, no, no question. But if you're sitting there saying we're going to create a podcast or some other kind of content creation to mislead people, that's the road that we absolutely can't go down, that we appear to be going down. Any thoughts? So shameless plug, our podcast is called The Crisis Cast, appropriately, appropriately named. And the opinion that we share is our experience and the opinions that we give our clients and how to have truth prevail because every crisis client that Tom and I have, either that we share or we work on independently, and Tom is, we are still together, even though I don't work with him in the, anymore. We still share clients and we show, share resources and his son works for me. But we ultimately ask for the truth so that our clients are trustworthy. And that's what we do is we, we raise awareness and create third-party supporters so that we can help. It, it, we keep, uh, I'm, trying, I'm stumbling because it's so simple, but it's so complex. We help our clients understand that they're, truth, they're trustworthy. We wouldn't work. We wouldn't put, Seraphin and Associates wouldn't put their name on a client if they didn't believe in it. Strategy or Consulting would not put our name on a client if we didn't believe in it. And truth be told, we have a client right now that that lab elite i'll tell you because i've been quoted in the paper on them they were investigated by the feds last week they're a lab testing agent for a COVID. they probably just they got lumped in with every other lab that's being investigated but one of the reporters um eric hong i was talking to and christian far i was talking to about this i said guys you know me i wouldn't put my name with this company if they weren't trustworthy and they're like you're right Liz. So. I'm not going to, I'm going to work with people that are trustworthy and I'm going to help them become more trustworthy. I love hearing that applause, applause, applause. Thank you. I mean, they're just the, the challenge that I think is there are people like you in this industry and the rest of us on this podcast share that point of view. Absolutely. And so we live by that code, but there are so many who don't. So, you know, when, the volume of information that's being pushed out by untrustworthy as well as trustworthy folks. How are people to discern? You know, that's, that's largely where we sit, the challenge that, that we face. Yeah. I love though that Lisa, Lisa shared that. And I think it is a trend though, where we're seeing more agencies, even big agencies. And you know, Edelman recently announced too, that they are going to do a review of clients and make sure that there's an alignment in terms of climate action that all of their clients are taking and uh, try to do the right thing. And I think that gets to uh, another point of the, the Edelman survey. I mean, it's interesting. Edelman put out the trust barometer and they are the agency that is doing this, that is taking this huge step and saying, we're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're going to do a client review and make sure that our clients are, you know, 
are doing the right thing and employees are demanding it as well. Highly admirable. I'm really grateful to see that because, you know, it wasn't long ago that our industry, particularly on the PR side, didn't exactly have, you know, the greatest reputation. Um, so we all, we've all battled that in the time that we've, we've been doing this as a career. I'm going to transition us into, um, or back to, I guess, uh, looking at some more of the findings from uh, the most recent Edelman Trust Barometer. Um, so when it comes to our major sources of information, the public trusts, wait for it, search engines the most, with 59% viewing this source as trustworthy. Traditional news media slightly less at 57%, owned media at a much lower 43%, and a social media um, as the least trusted of all at 37%. Um, I want to pause for just a second on that uh, search engine as the most trusted with the highest number. Obviously a little concerning because we all, I think, know full well search engines are, uh, they mostly deliver information. They certainly don't originate information. And the way that they deliver that information is highly targeted. And they do so because they're looking to um, send information to people um, so that they'll click on it, clearly. The point being, if the information aligns with their personal belief systems or their values or their own um, ideas, whatever, you know, grounded or ungrounded, uh, that's, that's what they send them. So that alone, I just want us to kind of let that sink in for a second because that number has continued to climb. And now it's at a point where I was personally a little terrified to see that. So just to pause on that, I don't know if anybody wants to jump in on that point in a sec when we kind of uh, tee it up for there's, there's a hand, again. There's a hand going up. Awesome. Hey, let's Our do it. Got a hand. Let's you know what the second largest search engine in the world is? YouTube. 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 Why? because it's visual. Nonverbal communication is two thirds of how we communicate. Nonverbal communication is two thirds of how we communicate. So that, that music, that video, that color, that saying, that's how we communicate. And that's why people gravitate to YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, I was saying, I was thinking about how Pew, you know, when Pew does all these, the, the annual survey, now it's more regular than annual, but of media trends. And I remember 10 years ago when I would teach the students, you know, we'd talk, I'd talk about media channels. Where do you get your news? And so many would say, I get it from Facebook. You know, I get it. And I would say, that's not a news channel. That is a distributor of news content. And the students then, I think they were maybe ahead of me on this. <laughs> Actually, when you look at it, the kids are always ahead of the trends because look at where, you know, it is today. You know, they're, I'm sure, driving some of this understanding that, no, actually, I am getting my news from a search engine. And I told you that 10 years ago, and it's and, it, and more and more are saying that. So whether, you know, you like it or not, that is the reality. And I think if you take a global perspective and think about what's happening in Ukraine today, we know that search engines do serve a purpose. And some in some countries, you know, media is state-owned and can't be trusted. So, I mean, it's this intersection between, you know, and this, I mean, we're going to talk about corporations in a minute, but why are corporations trusted and corporate, you know, running, you know, runs a lot of these social media channels, the so corporate leaders, because they have such an oversized impact on world events, you know, and, and um, right. So I, I think the students were ahead when it came to knowing that social media or web um, 
social media would be their new source. So I, I want to introduce another uh, component to this, uh, this, this you know, thread that we're um, unraveling. Concern over fake news is at an all-time high right now, yet we know that so much of what's delivered through search engines, which are so highly trusted, <laughs> isn't necessarily fact-based. In fact, often it's, it's not fact-based. The crackdown on that has been too slow um, and so much damage has been done. Um, but is there pressure right now on the news media to provide fact-based reporting versus that amplification of propaganda and fake news? Um, is, does that pressure exist in, in, in our panelists' opinions? Well, number one, let's go back to the days of Tom Brokaw, uh, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather. Did, do we, did we know what political affiliation they were? Unlikely. No, we didn't. Now the, you cannot turn on a network without knowing their political affiliation. And you literally, I tell my daughter and I tell other people, watch two networks. You watch CNN and watch Fox. And then you can see, watch the same exact story being reported with two different spins. That's what, unfortunately, a lot of our news has become today is it gravitates to one audience or the other to draw in the audience that they want so that they can build on that audience so they can charge more for a commercial so that they can build on that audience. It's become so sectionized. It's disgusting. And I, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that there's going to be some kind of a correction. It's going to have to be an outlet that actually does not report the news with bias. Yeah, and I that saying- has to happen. Yeah, and I think, Alyssa, you're right, and, and the trend toward nonprofit, I mean, I know because at, at Columbia College Chicago, where I teach, and the journalism students, they want to be a part of these new media changes, right? They want to contribute in a positive way, and they challenge the profit motivation of many corporate uh, media uh, entities. And, you know, we were just talking about how Chicago Public Media just purchased the Sun-Times. So we're going to see that's going to be huge. Uh, Block Club Chicago is so trusted by everyone I know in Chicago. I mean, quite honestly, that's where the people will go for the news. Um, you know, they were the first to break the story. I had that horrible fire in the neighborhood the other day. We don't still don't know how it was caused that brought down to um, business establishments and on the north side in Albany Park. And Block Club Chicago was the first one to break the story that, you know, they were looking into one of the maybe the landlords and uh, and really investigating it and bringing that news, you know, out and and, you know, People turn there. They're, they're there first. So I think these experiments are growing. And I think it might be what Lisa was getting at in terms of what is going to have to change. And I think it's looking at the profit motive. I think, I think it's very reassuring what you just said, Anne-Marie, because there are entities out there that are doing what you're suggesting if you're going to restore that trust. And when 76% of the people are suggesting that they just want fact-based reporting, and yet, Lisa, what you said about CNN or Fox, so many people turn on the TV who are still turning on the TV, by the way, and they're going right to where they want to hear what they want to hear. And that is a huge profit center. And now you're talking about having a not-for-profit model that's really starting to flourish. And I think that's good. If you if you just want the facts, that's probably going to be the best way because still the power of a Fox or a CNN or an MSNBC who take sides before the story is even reported, um, that's been a horrendous trend in terms of building that trust. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we know, too, the Fox News relationship, a very highly profiled and publicized relationship between the White House, you know, the uh, past, doc, you know, Trump, uh, former President Trump and Fox News. It was very clear, like it wasn't even masked that there was a revolving door between, uh, you know, folks, you know, his his counsels in, on the news network his counselors, you know, and then some of the, and that, and that trend started with, you know, Obama, Clinton, they all, you know, were like, I, you know, we were talking about earlier, they have all gotten um, insight from, from uh, pundits and, and journalists and, 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 and tried to establish that relationship with them so that they could have them, you know, you put that well-placed article or that well-placed commentary out in support of their policies. Let's talk about Chris Cuomo and Governor Cuomo. Raise your hand if you were shocked that Chris Cuomo was talking to his brother when his brother was in trouble. Really? I was <laughs> no. not shocked. No. Okay, I'm being facetious. The yes. point is, they can't look, see facetious when we were on journalists. Uh, when <laughs> when Rob and I were journalists, we worked like the dickens to cultivate sources. I mean, we were nothing without our sources anything. And how many times would we have elected officials or even their chiefs of staff contact us to try and spin us, to try and turn us one way? I mean, that's what Tom Serafin did forever. That's how he met his wife, Ann Serafin, is he tried, and and I can, and he tried to spin her to get his candidate on the air more. And that's what they do. But people like Rob and I, which are dinosaurs in the unbiasedness, uh, that we took it with the proverbial grain of salt. In this day and age, when I deal with elected officials, first of all, I don't work for them. I work with them. I don't work on a campaign. I don't represent one side or the other. Tom and I are probably the last two firms in the city, if not the country, that are non-political. We are. We do not side. We are known as a Republican or a Democratic firm, both of our firms. We are apolitical. And that is what we pride ourselves on so that we can help our clients to the best of our ability on both sides of the aisle. It's a really, that's a really important point that you're making there in terms of, you know, still having that guiding light that you're following, even though you've left that business and I've left that business, I still am, you know, having spent 25 plus years in it, it's hard to say, oh, I'm taking a side because I spent years not taking a side. And so people say, what industries are your best industries? I'm like, whoever has trouble communicating and somebody will say, I've got this person or that person. And if I think that they're doing, as you, you're talking about the trust factor earlier, Lissa, if, if I feel like you know, that's something that's important to them, then those are the people that you want to work with. This is a really interesting part of the conversation, but I want to change gears a little bit now and talk a little bit about business, the expectations for where people work. Business specifically quote, my employer leads in the most trusted category with 77%. Overall business leads the way at 61. Non-governmental organizations, NGOs at 59%, governments at 52, and the media at 50. This wasn't always the case as historically, I feel like there was always been a palpable skepticism about is what my boss telling me true. So Anne-Marie, is this this trust in your business, the fact that people are working remotely, the fact that there is a disconnect now in the business world a little bit, even though we have great ways to communicate, the fact that you can't communicate in person, is, is this a product of the pandemic disconnect where workers are craving more information, any information, or do you think it's something else? Mm, yeah, a great question. You know, I spent a few decades in employee communications. 
uh, and I still consult in this area. And I think the work going on in organizations today, the CEOs, senior executives to forge these bonds and connections internally is really off the charts. I, I think that this, um, you know, retention, like you're saying now, so difficult with the remote workplace, but yet technology has enabled people to see each other face to face. I mean, you know, missing that in-person connection, but being able to connect regularly through technology, um, you know, it's a fact. Retention is important now. We know the great resignation is a huge trend. And we know that when employers can retain their, their, their workers, they're going to see tremendous cost savings because onboarding is so, you know, as you know, as business owners, right? As small business owners, once you get that uh, employee on board and they've been trained and, and they know your, your routines, you don't want to lose those people. You want to do everything you can to keep the people. It's the same no matter what organization you have, small or large, right? So cost savings, but then happy employees are productive employees, right? So there's that bottom line benefit. And the great thing living in this data-driven society that we're in now is the data's in. I mean, it, it is it is in, it is known. I mean, you know, you keep employees, you retain your good employees, you keep them happy, they're going to be more productive. You are going to see the bottom line savings. And, um, you know, smart companies are acting on this data. And I can tell you, this wasn't always the case. Like you were saying, Rob, you know, you didn't always trust the boss. You know, you always looked at the boss with skepticism. And I can tell you when I started in this business, I, I worked for, an, I will not name, a very large uh, utility uh, company. In, in Chicagoland. And the CEO at the time, I remember when we, uh, I was doing employee communications work, the trust survey came in. We had done a survey to find out, did employees trust leadership? The numbers weren't good. So basically the CEO said, well, we're just going to put that away and not do anything with it. And, you know, that was very common, you know, back then, right? You know, you didn't like the numbers, you just didn't share them. And there was a CEO transition and there was a change in the culture. And, you know, now every employer wants to be on that best employees list. That CEO, they want to be the most trusted CEO. So they are working really hard with that data and trying to establish that reputation. And I, and I, so I think it's no accident, um, you know, that you're seeing employers and my CEO is trusted. CEOs generally are not trusted, but my CEO is trusted and my colleagues and my coworkers are trusted. So I think that's what the data is showing. And I think it's a largely because that's the real work that uh, organizations industry is doing now. They want to fill that, that I guess, that void, you know, in, in our society. That I um, just want to jump in on the point that you made about my CEO, my coworkers. That's interesting because that also kind of aligns with another aspect of the findings of um, the trust barometer about um, trusting people kind of in your tribe, right? Mm -hmm. People from your city more than you do uh, fellow Americans or people from other countries, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's very clear from this data and has continued to climb another very disturbing piece of it. Um, but one that, that I don't think we're going to delve too deeply in today, but it's interesting how that aligns. So let's move into another area here. We got a couple more big bites um, of this data that we wanted to um, be sure we cover. So while business outscores government by 53 points on competency and 26 points on ethics, respondents believe business is not doing enough to address societal problems, including climate change, at 52%, economic inequality, 49%, workforce reskilling, 46%, and 
and providing trustworthy information, 42%. And further, CEOs are expected to shape conversation on policy and policy, pardon me, on issues like jobs for the economy, that's a whopping 76%, wage inequity, 73%, technology and automation, that's at 74%, and global warming and climate change at 68%. So my question to our panelists is, what can leaders do to better understand what is expected of them from all of these key constituencies? I'm not just talking about the people who work there, but all of the constituencies. Um, people who buy their products, partners, influencers, et cetera. What can they do to better understand what is expected of them from these folks? And do they have an obligation to communicate their own and their company's position on major societal issues? First of all, they need to wake up and smell the coffee. And this is evolution. Okay. This is not, not the old boys network anymore. I, my company is a certified women business enterprise. I am proud of that. I work with many companies where diversity and inclusion is a key factor. I have my clients claim me as a diverse spend because I have a WBE certification. This, this has to change. This is no longer business as usual. Evolution. Everything evolves. Again, we didn't have podcasts 10 years ago. Now we do. We didn't have diversity and inclusion mandates before. Now we do. And I don't want to say mandate. Mandate's the wrong word. It should be in, included in every corporate structure. It's a hard thing to do. Not everyone is good at it. But you have to look at what you have at your makeup and make sure everyone is treated equally. And it's, it's disgusting that it's still happening today. And it's not. It's disgusting. Yeah. Lisa hits on a great point. I, I you know, the, the past year, the amount of, of conferences and discussions and, and, and truly um, impactful work that organizations are doing around DEI is, is um, it, it's impressive. And, but I mean, it's only the beginning and it, some of it is too much conversation, not enough action. Um, but, you know, at, some of it is action and, and some organizations really are saying, how do we lift the voices of those who've never been uh, represented before? How do we literally change our organizational structure to make more room? And I, yeah, I think it's the tipping point. Hopefully we're going to be seeing a lot more because I think that is, that is key is just bringing diverse voices in um, and leading with empathy. I, you know, I think that's another thing that I think is a, is we're starting to see more of from leaders is, you know, just trying to be more, there, where they, we're meeting people where they're at, hearing what they're saying, hearing what their issues are, and responding. So I think it's continuing to lead with empathy, um, decrease that inequality gap. I mean, I'll tell you. I mean, I think we all remember a time when we started working, and the CEO made forty times the the the, the uh, lowest paid employee um, salary, and now it's you know it can be hundreds of times the lowest paid employee. So I think look, looking at inequality, wherever it is, and, and thinking more about that as well. I think you made a great point because I think it's a start. Alyssa, you said that it's a start. And, and sometimes it's some places it's lip service, but I think they've realized if we don't do something meaningful and actionable, we're going to get left behind. Not only is it going to hurt our profit margin, but more importantly, it's the right thing to do. This is the way the world is going now. And I've seen clients that are like, how do we do this? And I'm kind of committed to it. And I've seen other clients that are truly in on this and they have committees and they're doing work on a 
daily basis to further the cause of equality in all forms and fashions in their in their uh, businesses. And those are the ones that are going to get ahead. Um, yes, it will impact your profit margin because people won't work with you if you don't have a good DEI plan, if you're not making sure that you're adhering to uh, principles of equality. But also, it's a better place to work. And we get back, let, let's circle way back to like retention and recruitment. You're not going to get the best people anymore to work at your company if you're not really doing the work that is uh, sincere and that's real. Yeah, that's such a great point, Rob. I just want to jump in too, because if you look at the Edelman survey, it talks about the real mistrust. People who who lack trust are those the low income. You know, they did a study. If you're if you're higher income, lower income, folks at the lower end are feeling lack such a lack of trust. And so, how are we going to build trust? If that's the question at the bottom, you know, how are we going to bring more trust? It's going to be by also addressing the inequality issues. It's connected. Absolutely. I agree with you on that, Henry, no doubt about it. I also kind of want to dig a little into um, our panelists' expertise and recommendations on um, what are the best ways that you have seen or would recommend um, that leaders, particularly these business leaders, um, can gain that understanding of what their specific constituents really care about and want them to do? What do you think are the best mechanisms to get that information? Well, human relations. Yeah, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I was just going to say the same thing. It's, you know, it's, I wish I could say it's some sort of mind blowing, like new thing. <laughs> I think some of it is like the basics are still the things that, that work. Um, and now that there are more, you know, d- different types of, you know, data collection, it's, I think they should be collecting more data on a regular basis and, and acting on it. So, I mean, it's really, you know, how are you, when you reach out, when you have that town hall, when you have, you know, when you're starting to work on DEI and put your DEI plans together and you're starting to execute them internally, getting that feedback, are we doing it? Are we meeting your needs? And, and just building in that continuous feedback loop. I mean, I think it's, it's really, and that ties to empathy too, because truly, if you're willing to listen to the hard stuff as well as the good stuff, you know, too many people just want to hear the good stuff. Oh, just blow smoke my way and tell me how great I am and how wonderful. You saw that great DEI statement I made and that terrific presentation. Are you not dazzled? Um, well, you know, here, listen to the hard stuff too. Listen to the, you know what, maybe that student go further enough. Maybe we're not really seeing enough action quickly. Maybe you need to change some things about whatever policies are in place to really impact me at the, at the, you know, every level of the organization. So I, you know, I think it's just honesty and empathy and a, and a willingness to hear good and bad. And I, I don't think all leaders are willing to do that. You know, you look at the different tech now. I mean, I, I think the tech industry is doing a pretty phenomenal job. They're at the high end in terms of building trust. If you look at the Edelman survey, um, you know, certain financial services at, is at the low end. So, I mean, you know, maybe it's a matter of looking at the different industries that are doing a great job and, and, and seeing what they're doing as well. I mean, best practices are still also helpful. I would go back to old fashioned human relations and get out of your C-suite and talk to people at large. Pick, you know, 10 people in different departments in your company, 10 people that you normally don't talk to and take them out for coffee and explain them that this is not a job review. 
this is a review, uh, a help me help you learning experience. You know, get to hear people that they normally don't talk to and find out what's what makes them tick. What are the strengths, the weaknesses, the threats, and the opportunities that an employee sees in a company? And if you don't listen, you're never going to hear. That's such a great point. Active listening, real listening, you know, not just like, oh, I checked that box off. I had that coffee with that employee team. Like you said, it's, it's more, it's the active listening. Absolutely. You know, something that, something that we do often is we conduct assessments for companies. Sure. We're a communication strategy firm, but under that strategy, communication is part of how you operate is the whole internally and externally. So we do assessments for companies, nonprofits, I'm part of a DOJ assessment for a, a police department where we go and interview people in a company, brand 19, 20 people at, at, at our client's direction. And we ask them these questions and we tell them these interviews are completely anonymous. So just have at it. They're like a couch in a, in a shrink, shrink's office. And they and tell, tell us everything, good, bad, and different, because no one's going to know who said it. And I wrote an assessment for a company once. And when we finally went through the assessment, two of the top people were like, oh, I know I said that line. I know that came from me. And the reality was four people said that same line. But the point is we did an assessment and helped them understand their strengths, their weaknesses, their threats, and their opportunities on how to run a company and what the employees thought, felt, and wanted to see happen. And that was a way of opening up your ears and understand. And just for the fact that the CEO wanted this assessment done, maybe he couldn't sit down with 20 people, but we could, and we uh, meant the world to those people that we were interviewing, that the CEO knew that we told them, number one, the CEO wants this. So pretend you're talking to the CEO because you're talking to us for him. Oh, that's great. Great advice from both of you. Thank you. I really like the combination of direct feedback uh, human relations, as you put it, Lisa, um, and also you know the gathering of data, all that's super important. Um, I, it was struck by a thought um, as you both were speaking that uh, people are probably very uncomfortable having conversations like that directly with their leadership teams, and they're not going to be as forthright with what they have to say. But when you put someone like you, Lisa, in that seat, gathering the information, Oh, that's a whole other kind of layer of comfort, I'm sure, um, that's brought you know to the collection of information. That's um, so. That's great advice from both of you. Thank you. I have had a, a short anecdote to share. I have one client. Um, they they are definitely a model of uh, gathering of input from their employees, particularly in the last five years, and they also were recently named to. Um, a, a very prestigious best of list national um, kind of award, you know, in, in the top 20. And when they were asked to participate once more in next year's collection of information, they declined because it would involve a very lengthy employee survey. And they're already gathering so much information from their employees that they don't want to jeopardize that they're not willing to go for that award because they want to be able to get the information that they need to be able to do and continue the work that they have underway, which I thought was pretty great. So I just thought I'd mention that. Interesting uh, how now companies are going to have to grapple with that too. The over-surveying of their employees, which will become a big problem, right? Oh yeah. They didn't do it enough and now they don't want to do it too much. 
Now everybody can do it too with polling on Zoom. Like I can do, you know, everybody can do surveys. Totally. But you do it in the classroom. Yeah, right. (laughs) I think this is a perfect segue into talking about CEOs, more specifically leadership. When considering a job, 60% of employees want their CEO to speak out on controversial issues that they care about. And 80% of the general population want CEOs to be personally visible when discussing public policy with external stakeholders or work their company's done to benefit society. What goes into responding appropriate to this dramatic change in expectations from the recruitment perspective? Anybody can jump in here. I think it's very interesting. Eileen and I talk about it a lot. And it's not only building a CEO brand or a leadership brand, but it's also having something to say about important issues because so many people now don't just want to go work for a place and make a good living and do that sort of thing. They want to be invested with people uh, who they have similarities with and people that are that care about the environment or they care about um, equity, um, things of that nature. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I did you want to jump in, Lisa? Yep. Uh, no, you go first on this. Oh, okay. One. <laughs> I, 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 just because this is so near and dear to my heart, this topic as a professor who's working with young people trying to transition into uh, communication careers, advertising, PR, social media, all these growing industries, hearing them speak about uh, how important it is to them. I mean, I, I know students who go in, get these great jobs with a lot of big, high starting salary and just say, I'm probably going to be moving on because I just don't believe in this mission or this cause. Or I'm that is always the top question of discussion whenever you're talking to students in career counseling. It's like, you know, it's not just going to be about a paycheck to me. It's going to be about I have to feel really good about where I'm going every day to work. And it's and I mean, I see them putting their their feet where their mouth is like they're moving. You know, they will move on if they don't feel that important connection. And and so. I, I know companies know this, but the other thing is our world is so complicated now. And I just feel like we can't, you know, not talk about what's happening in Ukraine today and looking at the corporate uh, uh, impact, you know, looking at what BP did when they, when they um, withdrew their investment from ResNet, the Russian oil company. I mean, that was huge. And they're going to take a huge profit loss on that with that decision. And, you know, you, I don't think you could have expected a, 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 a corporation to do something like this decades ago. I mean, but today, and then looking, you know, Apple and all of the different, um, you know, corporations that operate in Russia are, are really, they're being called to account. Well, what are you, what are we going to do about this? You know, and they're hearing it from all sides. So I think we live in a world today where they, you know, major corporations have such an, a major geopolitical impact on so many different aspects of our society that they really cannot not engage on societal issues. And I mean, and even in this country, if you look at um, the issue, you know, after the brutal killing of George Floyd and so many, um, you know, so many protesters across the country, Again, that was another conversation where, and I think that's why we got to where we are today with DEI in a lot of respects, because the conversations were happening locally and, and people were really wanting to hold their employers accountable to do something. So I, I don't see these trends going away at all. I see them growing more so, especially with the up and coming Gen Z. The thing that gives me pause, and I don't disagree with you, but the thing that gives me pause are the political discussions. And that's where I would absolutely... Unless your company is built 
about based on one political platform or another, you don't know who works for you. And to stay quiet in a political discussion sometimes is the best thing to do because you don't want to offend some of your employees. You don't want to, people don't like to be to told what to think. They like to make their own decisions. And when you shove something down someone's throat and this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it, that's going to affect morale in one way, shape, or form because not everyone, in the, unless, again, unless a company or an organization has a political slant, absolutely. But if you're, uh, let's say, uh, General Motors, if you're Motorola, if you're the CEO of a, public, a huge Northwestern hospital, you better be careful on what you decide to talk about and where, because it has gotten people into trouble, especially when they say the wrong thing. How many CEOs have we seen lose their jobs because they've stepped out and said the wrong thing and have offended someone? That's a very I'm good speechless. point. <laughs> no, I'm, I was actually just really processing because I was thinking about Anne Marie's <laughs> the examples, <laughs> a couple examples that Anne Marie gave, um, even uh, BP, the example of BP. Um, withdrawing their investment, um, and that's an that's an obvious uh, show of support for Ukraine. Would you consider that political, Lisa? I'm just curious. Uh, no, okay, because that affects. That's just wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how I I'm talking. Well. I'm talking Republican, Democratic, Socialist, yeah. Independent. I'm talking the the root of our economy the root of our country and i think because it's been... it, look at our state in illinois alone oh, south of i-80 is a different state than north of i-80 period full stop and you think and about anyone who owns political... a company in illinois it's that's not easy that's true you think about politics being so divisive it always has been it's only getting more so but the whole ukraine thing is a really great point and i'm glad you made that delineation lissa because it feels like most people are unified in what they're seeing and saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is going on. And they're seeing what the leadership in Ukraine is doing, uh, which I think is very impressive. You know, do you need a ride out of town? And the president's like, nope, I need ammunition. I mean, that's that's very impressive. And I, so so that's a good, that's a, I'm, I'm glad that you made that distinction because I think it's important when we're talking about politics in our country and sort of the geopolitical issues going on right now, which are hard to ignore. Yeah. So uh, I'm thinking of companies um, taking a stand on the abortion law in Texas, for example. That's a perfect example of a political stance that um, it sounds like, Lisa, you would always advise not to yeah. take. Yeah. Unless you are built on that issue. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's because most of the time it appears to be far afield of um, not only your values, but just, you know, is that right. the playground that you typically play in? Well, and I think my rule of thumb, my rule of thumb is politics and religion. Stay out of it. Right. Um, part of it, too, is, uh, I, you know, if you have, you know, for example, maybe low, you're operating in Texas. I mean, I, so I, I think it gets more complicated. Um, and, it, and that's why there's no I don't feel like there's no one size fits all because you have to listen to your st stakeholder groups. And I, and I think what we're seeing is the rise of the employee voice as an even more impactful stakeholder group than it's ever been before. So I think it's gonna be never a one size fits all. You have, you know, depending on the leader, depending on the management team and the type of 
organization you're leading and how, you know, how much do you again, have that two-way communication with the employees? How, how much of a voice does the employee have in sort of your operating principles, for example? And let's get back to values. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about earlier when we were talking about the survey is what are your values as a company? And values are so unique to every company. So if a company has put something related to women's rights, okay? You, you can't be a company that says, hey, uh, we are gonna put equality for women and gender at the top of our values list. That's our value. But yet we're gonna keep quiet on maybe an issue that is affecting our employees and our stakeholder groups. That would be a huge mistake because you're not living up to your values. So I think it's like, it gets a little bit more complicated when you, when you you know, when you, when you think of it that way, or maybe it gets more simple, <laughs> you know, maybe that's actually a way to simplify it is to say, what, what are your values as an organization and, and, is, and put it through that litmus test instead of like a stake in the ground, we're, you know, not going to ever do this. Well, does it align with our values or not? I mean, that's the litmus test, I believe for most organizations. Yep. I, we concur hundred percent. I'll add to that mission. So mm-hmm. bundle, bundle those two together. Your values yeah. and your mission. That's where you start. Everything pretty much passes through there. Right. And it's it's going to be um, increasingly more complex, I think, you know, as we move along. And I loved uh, the point that you made, Henry, about the the rise of the voice um, of the employee. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think it's going away either. And it's something that leaders are really gonna have to pay so much more attention to. Especially with the great resignation. You want that great talent. You want that, you know, new talent. You better, it's different. We're different generations here, you know? Yeah. I mean, our values piece, the more that you as an organization live those values, clearly identify them, clearly define them in terms of what they mean to you as an organization. Um, the litmus test of of the employees that you attract starts there, right? If you have that so clearly established, then the folks who align with your mission and your values are the most likely to want to come and work for you and stay. So you'll be able to represent, you know, what matters to them uh, much more easily because they're kind of in your camp to begin with. That's another, you know, school of thought for sure. I think it's a pretty important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, and if an organization hasn't gone through that exercise of going through their values and maybe even reevaluating their values, that was actually one of the most rewarding things I ever did at Sarah Lee Corporation. Um, was we were with under Brenda Barnes' leadership, who is really one of the most impactful um, female CEOs I think ever, and she's so missed today. She inspired me. You know, she was that CEO that left PepsiCo after she had children, so that she could raise her children. She had the highest position at PepsiCo North America in the '90s, and for me, that was hugely impactful. I mean, I don't know if you all remember this, but it made such big national news in the '90s that a CEO woman who had attained this you know, top position left her job and people said, oh, that's the kiss of death. She'll never get back into corporate America. And then she ended up being CEO of Sara Lee Corporation. And so she was like my, oh, my role model. Um, but anyway, she led the transformation and the effort to create values. And I, as employee global comms lead, we went through this amazingly inspirational process of the leaders kind of came up with some of their thoughts and we went back and forth with employees all around the globe. 
and and ended up a year long process using like very funky, like uh, whatever the technology available at the time was, which wasn't very savvy like today, but we were able to have these chats and, you know, and get input on the values and then unveil them. But it was a truly collective process that was immersive and it brought the whole organization together. So it wasn't like we're going to bestow these values upon you employees. It was like everybody had the input and, and the buy-in, you know, to the values. So um, that is a, such a super rewarding process. And I don't know if organizations, you know, do, do that work enough, you know, or frequently enough to say, are our values still aligned with where we want to be, where we want, you know, where we're heading? And particularly right now, that's very sage advice, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just the tumult, you know, just even in the last two years. Um, but there was a lot that preceded that as well, you know, in uh, the last two decades. If folks haven't done that a kind of reevaluation mm-hmm. exercise, it does feel like now would be a very important time to put that at the top of your list or at least plan for it in 2023. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been an unbelievable conversation. I want to thank Lissa Druss of Strategia Consulting and Anne-Marie Mitchell of Columbia College for your amazing insight. Thanks for being with us today. What a great discussion. Eileen and I are so grateful you're here. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you to both thank of you. For the, we're, thank you for the topic. topic. It was a lot of fun. Very important, very important stuff, no doubt. And that is going to do it for another edition of Can You Hear Me? I'm Rob Johnson, president of Rob Johnson Communications. And I'm Eileen Rochford, CEO of the Harbinger Group. We thank you for listening. Remember, you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, all of them. Thanks so much, everybody. Until next time. 